doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Cheryl about rheumatoid arthritis. We've spoken to a couple people on the show who have rheumatoid arthritis as part of their symptom picture, but we have yet to have an episode where we focus solely on this painful disease. And Cheryl was the perfect person to do that with. She's extremely knowledgeable and uh, had a lot to say about what this disease is, how it works, how it differs from osteoarthritis, which is the more common form. And also talking us through her story, her diagnostic journey, as well as the medications that she used and the different therapy and management techniques that help her get through her life with rheumatoid arthritis. Cheryl's actually a podcaster herself. She hosts the Arthritis Life podcast. And since recording this conversation with Cheryl, I have listened to a little bit of that show, and it is great. There's a lot of similarities with this podcast. So if you have arthritis, or just for anyone with chronic pain, anyone interested in hearing more stories from people living with chronic illness, you got to check out the Arthritis Life podcast. Cheryl's podcast and her TikTok account is all about helping other people live their best lives with arthritis. And as an occupational therapist, she has a lot of experience helping others, and it really shows in this podcast because she's so knowledgeable and she has so many great ideas and, you know, therapeutic techniques that she's used on herself that have worked for her and, you know, just so much good stuff in this podcast. I'm really excited to share it with you. It's such a fun episode. Very grateful to Cheryl for coming on the show, and we're going to get to that in just a couple minutes. I'll remind you, as always, that I am not a medical professional, and although Cheryl is an occupational therapist who is hugely knowledgeable, this podcast itself is not intended as medical advice, so please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this show without first consulting your doctor. Last week on the podcast, we spoke with Nick about his non-traumatic spinal cord injury and Sjogren's syndrome. We got a really interesting comment on Instagram for that episode. This comment was actually from Summer, who we spoke with on the podcast about neuromyelitis optica, NMO. And if you'll remember, Summer is a doctor herself. So here's her comment. Sjogren's can cause transverse myelitis. Usually people that get Sjogren's-related TM have longitudinally extensive cervical lesions and are aquaporin-4 positive and actually have both Sjogren's and NMOSD. Not saying that's what it is, but if they haven't run aquaporin-4 antibody tests, they should. Of course, I don't understand a lot of these words, but it is just so powerful to have an actual doctor listening to the show and, and adding comments like that. I just thought this was so cool. Um, and I did pass this along to Nick and we'll see if anything comes of it. I did have to look up NMOSD because, you know, we talked to Summer about her condition, which is NMO, but it turns out that there is a similar diagnosis, which is neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. And I thought this was super interesting because Nick was talking about how his doctors theorized that he may have had transverse myelitis, which could have caused his non-traumatic spinal cord injury. But they also told him that his, you know, his discovery of his autoimmune disorder, Sjogren's syndrome, was completely unrelated. So if there is a relation there and it's discovered because of a comment on this podcast from Summer, that would be absolutely incredible. Um, you know, it just got me thinking about 
how powerful it is as we build this community to build these connections. Because as you know, I'm someone who's undiagnosed and I am going to all my different doctors with these little pieces of information and trying to get them to connect the dots for me. And, you know, sometimes they just don't seem willing to dig or to think or to try. (laughs) And uh, just building a community of people who care about each other that includes some medical professionals who do care and someone like Summer who lives with NMO and who has all of this knowledge, not just because she's a doctor, but because she lives with the disease also and is someone who's willing to listen and and connect dots like that. That's incredible. So, you know, who knows if anything will come from this, but it's an exciting thing that I'm excited to share. Recently, I was contacted by the program coordinator at the Connect Trust Society, and they're doing a series of virtual panels in January called the Perspective Series. And they've invited me to be a panelist this upcoming Monday, the 17th, for a panel on invisible disabilities. I've never done anything like this before, and I was very honored to be asked. You know, I am very nervous to do things live because I never know how I'm going to be feeling on any given day. You know, uh, a lot of days I'm just in rough shape. (laughs) And that's what's so great about podcasting is that I can just do it on the days that work for me. But this is just such a great opportunity that I just couldn't say no. Uh, Fingers crossed for a good day, but, you know, I'm excited about this, and I wanted to let all of you who listen to this podcast know that this is happening, and I will put a link to the meeting registration. So, this is happening on Zoom. It will also be live-streamed to the Connectra Society's uh, social media pages, but I have a link for you that's in the description of the podcast if you'd like to register to watch live on Zoom as it's happening. And that is taking place this Monday, January 17th at 12 p.m. Pacific time. The Connect Trust Society's goal is creating opportunities for people with disabilities. And on the website, it says, we help people with physical disabilities connect with work, leisure, and social opportunities throughout Metro Vancouver. If you are a person with a disability who wants to be more active and engaged, Connectra offers community meetings, workshops and networking, and a resource directory for access, jobs, and lifestyle. So I'm very excited to be uh, connected to the Connectra Society and to be a part of this virtual panel this upcoming Monday. And if you can't join us for the live panel, I believe that the live stream will be archived and you'll be able to see it on their social media pages. So if you'd like to check out the Connectra Society, just head to connectra.org, C-O-N-N-E-C-T-R-A.org. This podcast is made possible through the support of listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our Patreon producers who have signed up to support the show at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, and Trish O'Brien. If you'd like to support this show on Patreon, there are three tiers of support starting at just $2 per month. There are different rewards, including special recognition and gifts at our different tiers, but everyone who signs up to support the show on Patreon gains access to our new monthly bonus podcast episodes featuring myself and Andy. And the episode from this month was very funny, and I've gotten some really great feedback. So thank you to everyone who's listened. You can find all the details and sign up to support the show at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. Don't forget to leave us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
And Spotify just added the feature to rate podcasts. I just found out about this yesterday, and I rated this podcast five stars. <laughs> so if you listen on Spotify, you are now able to give us a rating. And rating the show on whatever platform it is that you listen to helps us to reach new listeners. And reaching as many people as possible with this show is definitely one of my goals. So I would love your help by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating on Spotify, or if you listen anywhere else that allows ratings and reviews, go for it. I really appreciate it. And I keep an eye on the Apple Podcast reviews, but if you leave us a review on another platform and you'd like me to read it on air, I would love to do so. Just shoot me an email at majorpainpodcast at gmail.com with a screenshot of your review. If you'd like to interact with the podcast on our social media, you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at Major Pain Podcast, and you can also leave a comment on every episode on our website at majorpainpodcast.com. And with that, we're going to jump into our fantastic episode with Cheryl about rheumatoid arthritis. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yes, I'm very excited to talk to you today. I just realized today that you are a fellow podcaster, so this is very exciting. Yeah, it's always fun to to talk to somebody who knows the back end of podcasting, the mysterious world of podcasting. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, Cheryl, let's get to know you a little bit. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah, so I am 40 years old, which I feel like I'm still like, I don't know, 21. I was diagnosed um, when I was 21 with rheumatoid arthritis. And, um, but yeah, um, my other things about me are that I ha um, love swing dancing. I haven't mm. done too much of it lately, um, um, just due to some, the, some of the health issues. And then the pandemic, it's not quite the most pandemic friendly <laughs> activity. Yeah. Um, being touching people's hands, like partner swing dancing, but that was my great kind of joy. And that's actually how I met my husband. And I'm from the Seattle area, but I went to undergrad in New York and grad school in California. I'm also an occupational therapist, which if you don't know what that is, we're like, I like to think of us as life skills therapists. So a little bit of like a combination of a physical therapist and a psychologist or counselor. So we help people function in their daily lives with, and my specialty is arthritis life hacks <laughs> <laughs> and um, not just physical life hacks, but also kind of mental life hacks. Mm -hmm. And then one last thing is I am also a mom. I have a seven-year-old son and that's it. I'm back in Seattle. I forgot if I already said that. So that I'm in the suburbs of Seattle right yeah, now. Yeah, we're we're heard. neighbors here in Seattle. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I've seen yeah. you I've seen you on TikTok. That's how we connected. And I've seen some of your oh, your channel's called Arthritis Life Hacks and Support. And Oh yes, thank you. Yeah, and yeah, the handle is just Arthritis Life. That's the only life. place I actually got that handle. It was taken everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I've seen some of your videos where you actually show some life hacks for people with arthritis about ways to do things easier with less pain. And I love it. It's just, you know, it's, it's super cool. You know, my mom has arthritis and it's something that is, uh, it comes up a lot on the show, actually. We've talked to a lot of people who have arthritis, but we've never like really dug deep on, on it and, and focused on it because, you know, we all have so many, you know, conditions happening at the same time. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we always end up focusing on one thing or another. So I know that you have multiple conditions as well, but I'm excited to dive into arthritis a little bit today and, and get to learn a little bit about it and get some of your point of view. 
Yeah, I'm happy. I'll talk about it all day long. So <laughs> happy to be here. Awesome. Um, and I just have to mention that your name is is Cheryl Crow, which <laughs> yes, <it is. laughs> I was, when I got a message yesterday, I was next to my uh, my girlfriend Andy, and she's like, "Cheryl Crow messaged you." <laughs> I know. Yep it's it's a fun it's a good icebreaker. Yeah, yeah it's a good icebreaker name. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's been your name your whole life. Was it annoying when when musical artist Cheryl Crow? became a thing yeah no my favorite reference is when people refer to the amazing movie office space mm. where there's a character named michael bolton yeah <laughs> and they're like what's your favorite michael bolton song anyway um but no i think um i think what's funny about it is first of all i'm very extroverted and so i was like totally it was a fun icebreaker i think it would have been harder to have the same name like my cousin's name is scott peterson and that's like a murderer guy oh, oh no i mean it's also just like a con it's a common name but also so you know i mean it's having the same name as a as a famous singer who's kind of a cool person is not that bad but yeah yeah um what's funny is like a lot of times in my teens and early 20s people will be like is all you want to do is have some fun <laughs> you know like that song all you want to do is have some fun yeah and i didn't even really realize like there's a little bit of a sexual undertone of that song. I was like, yeah, I just want to have fun. <laughs> and later on, I was like, oh, I think that they're not just talking about fun in that wow. song. Anyway. That's hilarious. But yeah, no, it's a fun yeah. name. It's a fun name. I mean, yeah. that is the like quintessential Sheryl Crow song from my perspective. It is. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Mine too. It was the OG. It's the yeah. OG Sheryl Crow song. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Yay. let's get into our topic of discussion. So Cheryl, okay. what is your major pain? Yes. So my, you know, my pain comes from my immune system, which is what, how I help people understand the difference between, I explain it as, you know, um, it's my immune system is attacking the previously healthy tissues of my joints, mm. which is, that is the process of inflammatory forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and ankylosing spondylitis, which is very different than uh, osteoarthritis, which is often referred to as mechanical wear and tear, and it's associated with aging. So I don't know how I can nerd out about every you oh, know, this the, is the awesome. causes of it. I yeah. just learned a lot yeah. in that last sentence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So arthritis, the word arthritis means joint inflammation. So like yeah. itis after anything is inflammation, and then arthro is joint. So it's a it's actually a non-specific. The word arthritis is not a diagnosis. It's, it's a symptom. So in the same way that like a stomach ache can be a symptom of like stomach cancer or just eating too much or gas, you know, um, or celiac disease, you know, a arthritis can be a symptom of different things, right? Uh, you could have joint inflammation simply from overuse, or you could have an official, like, again, autoimmune or autoinflammatory form of arthritis, which is where your immune system mistakenly attacks or mistakenly perceives the synovial fluid, synovial lining of your joints, which is the part that's super, super lubricating. It's, it's kind of like what, um, like, you know, what allows your, the move joints that move a lot to move is you have this little fluid in there. And so for some reason, specifically your immune system is like, we don't like that. Mm. <laughs> that's a virus or that's a foreign invader. And then they come into the uh, immune cells, come into the joints and then they, um, then they cause inflammation because they think, okay, you know, we got to get, we got to get our, uh, we got to get people here to kind of like get rid of this and destroy this foreign invader, which is actually your healthy tissue. So, um, so the, again, in contrast, um, 
osteoarthritis, which is much more prevalent. You know, there's 54 million adults that have arthritis, some form of arthritis, again, as an umbrella term, um, and like 50 million of them in the United States, um, 54 million in the United States have some form of arthritis, 50 million have osteoarthritis. So it's by far the most prevalent, but that's, it's a localized thing where you have, you have pain and technically it's this joint inflammation, but it's not from an inflammatory process, like and not an autoimmune process. It's yeah. just not just, I mean, no pain is good. Right. But I'm just comparing it. Um, if you compare them, they're, they're very different in terms of the seriousness of them. Um, obviously we're living in a pandemic right now. So most people won't have a hard time understanding that, you know, um, having, your immune system be out of whack is not good. And so like the medicines I take for rheumatoid arthritis are immunosuppressant, Mm. which you think, oh no, you shouldn't take those during a pandemic, you know, (laughs) but also it's not also, you're not in a good position to fight um, illness if your body is really busy attacking your own tissues of your joints. So it's, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of complexity to managing these um, conditions. Uh, Like again, rheumatoid arthritis, um, osteo and, or rheumatoid psoriatic and ankylosing spondylitis. Yeah. But, um, and by the way, for those of your listeners who have back pain, if you've had back pain for a long time and you also have systemic, other systemic symptoms like fatigue or fevers, um, that would, it would be interesting to look into ankylosing spondylitis because it's very often misdiagnosed or because back pain is so prevalent, but um, as just a mechanical injury when it's actually a inflammatory disease. Yeah, we actually. Sorry, that's long. Oh no, this diatribe. please. This is awesome. Yeah, we actually spoke with uh, someone with ankylosing spondylitis, uh, Elias, uh, several episodes oh, okay. back. It was very interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> You're obviously incredibly knowledgeable, and this reminds me. I wanted to ask. So, for occupational therapy, what sort of training? Do, what sort of medical trainings do you have? Yeah. Yeah. Occupational therapy. I I mean, obviously I'm going to be biased because I went into the field because I think it's really valuable. I honestly think it's like the best medical specialty you might not have heard of. Um, <laughs> we are like, we are a licensed health profession in all 50 States. It's a, and it's a mandatory entry-level masters in the United States. So we have, you know, usually most people have an undergraduate degree in something like kinesiology, or um, I had an undergrad in psychology, and then you have a two and a half year to three year um, masters where you study again, it's, (laughs) we're like a jack of all trades in a good way and kind of a bad way. But like when we have some overlapping curriculum with physical therapists, we study you know, all the muscles of the body, all the nerves, how, what is pain? How is pain processed? We also study developmental disabilities. So not necessarily to do with pain or on a health condition, but you might have, you know, a child with, um, you know, autism or cerebral palsy, well, that is a health condition, but meaning like we also can work in those spaces and also mental health. So, um, so I, like for example, we work in all settings. Like we can work in with babies or with elderly, but what's what ties it together is always kind of breaking it down to what's what is a day in the life like for this client or patient? And then what's getting in the way? And can we what can we influence? So it's we all often we have this op, uh, model called like person, environment, and occupation. We just look at what are the personal factors that we can make better or work around, and then what are the environmental things we can change. So, um, so in the case of someone with pain, um, what's difficult about pain, right. Is that, um, like 
it's not always clear how much can you actually change in the person's experience of pain. We go, we obviously try every tool in our toolbox, you know, and I'll do this to myself. Like, you know, I'll be like, okay, can I try heat? Can I try cold? Can I try meds? You know, and then at a certain point, we also then have to go to what we call like compensatory strategies, which are let's figure out how to cope with this. Like mm-hmm. maybe we're not going to get your pain any better like today. So what can we do today to cope with, with the pain? So that's actually, you know, people say like, oh, if you weren't an occupational therapist, would you be a physical therapist? Like I would actually probably be like a psychologist because I find the mental health part, the most rewarding and the most um, fascinating and and, and helpful to me. Right. Yeah. Cause yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I'm totally, I, I, it's so important to talk about, you know, day-to-day living as someone with chronic pain. And I'm, that's something that I'm really excited to hear your perspective on. Um, Cause I think yeah. that's, you know, that's made the biggest difference for me in my own chronic pain, mystery illness journey is like focusing on day-to-day joy. And I always say like joy is cumulative. So if you can experience mm-hmm. joy, the more you can, the better you're going to feel overall. And even if you're in pain, that's still very possible to do. It's, it's hard, but it's possible. Oh my gosh. No. And I think this is what I see people a cycle and I don't to let me know if you agree, but there's this cycle where someone gets a new diagnosis, or maybe they just get the experience of feeling that something's off in their body. Right. And mm-hmm. then they, um, but let's just take the case of somebody who has a concrete diagnosis. Like you got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis yesterday. Okay. What people end up doing is like they get laser focused on like, how can I cure or heal this, mm-hmm. you know, and then they for and then that can become like a years long journey, right? You try <laughs> diet A, you try diet B, you try diet C, you try supplements, you try acupuncture, yeah. you try, and none of those things are bad, but your life is passing you by and those things may or may not work. Yes. So yeah, that's why I think our uh, occupational therapists are very pragmatic. Like we're very like, okay. Like we're going to try to get to the root cause, right? We're going to try whatever we can to like make it this problem go away. But, you know, the latest in pain science, at least that I've, you know, gone to some conferences and tried to learn as much as I can is that like, it's like the elephant in the room with pain management sometimes is that like, we don't have like medicine doesn't have the, the silver bullet for every patient. There's still a lot we don't know about pain. So can we help people? live a life. This is the life that you get. Like, and it, it's, it's definitely a grieving process to realize that like, maybe my pain won't go away. Like if yeah. that's your whole, if that's what brings your life meaning is trying to find the solution to make your pain go away. There's like going to be a grieving process, but then there's also like, it opens you up. Like the way I see it is like, like you mentioned spoons earlier. It's like, if you have a hundred spoons in a day and like, you know, 90 of them are going towards healing and curing. And like 10 of them are going towards like just surviving then what you can end up doing is being like, wait, actually, what if I use like 50 of those spoons to like maximize my joy and maximize my participation in our, my life. And then still like not give up hope or not give up on this idea of curing, you know, or well, a rheumatoid arthritis just, just for the record is considered there's no cure right now yeah. medically, but you might hope that, that it's like, if you, if you might hope that you find the cure and that's totally your prerogative. Um, but you know, using maybe 15 of your spoons to try to pursue that. Cause what's like, it's, it's this really unintuitive thing. Cause like a lot of people are first like, wait, no, 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 no. That's, that's backwards. Like the way I look at it, they say is backwards. Cause they're like, uh, I want if, but if I just find the magic bullet, then I don't have to accommodate and I don't have to compensate and I don't have, but I'm like, but you might not, you know what I mean? Like, I hate Absolutely. to be depressing, but it's like, 
like, of course, if everyone could, like, yes, if everyone could, if you just needed to spend all your spoons to find the way to heal it, then yeah, that would make sense. But it's actually, I'm more conservative. Like, I'm like, I want to put my eggs in the basket. That's like, what's actually for sure. Like I could for sure try to improve my quality of life today. You know what I mean? Versus that might not be sure that I could find a way to heal it. I'm a hundred percent on board with you. Like I agree with this a hundred percent. This is something I've been talking about a lot recently is oh, like, good. same page, same, same page. page. Yeah. This <laughs> idea of, you know, like putting all of your uh, effort and energy into finding a cure or a diagnosis or whatever versus putting effort and energy into being happy right now and how important that is. Because, you know, like on my journey, the first few years, I was just focused on finding that cure, that diagnosis, and my quality of life just completely went out the window. And it wasn't even, I wasn't even concerned. I was just like in this holding pattern and your life just passes you by, you know? And I've been on, I've been looking for a diagnosis uh, on and off for over a decade, you know, it's been like 11 or 12 years at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I don't know if what I've, like, I've had some trouble earlier than that, and I don't even know if it was the same thing or not. So, like, my whole life has just been all wrapped up in, like, what is this thing that is wrong? Can I find the answer? Mm -hmm. And there's, there have been several periods where I focused on that 100%, and they were, you know, really, really difficult, hard, unproductive, miserable years um, that yielded very little. And now I focus, I'm still like doing that. I have to because, you know, my, my body is not giving me a choice, but I'm also focusing on things that bring me joy and things that are productive and things that are building towards a future. Uh, and I've, I've had to recontextualize what all of those things look like. And that process has taught me so much about myself. So I'm just a hundred percent on board with this mindset because you will learn about yourself and that that will bring self-awareness and happiness that you didn't expect and, you know, comfort and, you know, contentedness that you wouldn't have expected inside of all of this maelstrom of pain. And that is, that's the thing that keeps me going. And it's really changed my life. It's made my relationships better and it's made me a happier person. So I'm a hundred percent on board with all of, all of what you just said. I love it. Oh my gosh. Have you looked into acceptance and commitment therapy? No. Okay. So this is where I learned this. So I'm always amazed when people can come to this conclusion on their own because I had to learn it from, (laughs) I had a therapist that recommended, um, like my psychologist um, recommended that I read this book called The Happiness Trap by Dr. Russ Harris, a psychologist out of Australia. And he teaches that the book is, um, it sounds like, oh, just some pop psychology book, right? Which first of all, I'm not going to knock it because that stuff helps people, but also <laughs> like it's based on a lot of research and, um, and um, it's, ba- it's a way to explain hap- uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which I'll say that slower, acceptance and commitment therapy is shortened often in the psych world to act, just ACT, and it is a mindfulness and behavioral approach. So it's kind of like you take the, my opinion, it's kind of like you take the best parts of mindfulness and the best parts of CBT and throw away the bad parts of CBT, like cognitive behavior therapy, which I don't think is appropriate for some of the exercises in cognitive behavior therapy are very problematic for people with chronic pain, in my opinion, mm-hmm. like the catastrophizing and all that is like very um, to not helpful in my opinion. But um, I mean, if it helps you, that's good. But for me, it didn't help. So um, what you do with acceptance and commitment therapy is you say, okay, the mindfulness piece is first is like, 
what is, can I connect to the present moment, which is just yeah, mindfulness 101, but without trying to change it or modify it. And like, that was a part, honestly, like I spent like weeks with my therapist being like, why, why, <laughs> like, why would I not want to make the present moment better? Like, I don't understand. Isn't this giving up? Like, isn't this, you know, settling? And like, she had to, and I actually have two therapists. I have a psychiatrist and a psychologist that have helped me through this. My psychiatrist in Seattle, actually, he's amazing. He does therapy. He does hour long therapy, which most psychiatrists don't do anymore. Um, but so, cause people get confused when I say your psychiatrist did therapy with you, you know, but yeah. So he does full therapy sessions using acceptance and commitment therapy. Oddly enough, side note, he is an OCD and phobia specialist. Cause mm. I also had, um, very severe claustrophobia, like to the point where actually it was technically clitrophobia, C L E I T H R O phobia, which is fear of being trapped. Mm-hmm. And what, I, what would happen was, um, I felt trapped in my body. Have you yeah. ever felt that? It's yeah. Mine, so mine manifests as a fear of, of machines breaking because I just, I just feel like I'm living inside of this body that's breaking down. Yeah. So oh I, whenever gosh. I'm in a car, I'm like, this car is going to explode. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> the oh, wheels are going to yeah, fall off and that. we're going to die. You know, that makes sense. <laughs> no. Well, and I would, my fear was like, well, initially I felt trapped in my body, but I also like, then it became somehow it got translated and it's funny because my the therapist is like doesn't really matter why right just happens but like i would not want to even go on a bridge like the floating bridge and it wasn't because i was afraid that the bridge would collapse i would be afraid that i would get trapped i just i couldn't stand the idea of being trapped anywhere car wash hmm. elevator i and i went through i kid you not so he's an ocd specialist and acceptance and commitment therapy is actually very evidence-based for all anxiety disorders including ocd because ocd is really a phobia based and I'm not an expert in it, but, um, what he, like, what he literally have me do is like, obviously go into elevators, you know, and exposure therapy is, I always thought exposure therapy was like, you make yourself go in the presence of your phobia and then you make yourself feel better. And that trains your brain to associate, like, I'm happy when I'm with my phobia, like what I'm phobic of, right? Like I'm with a spider, I'm afraid of spiders. I go sit with a spider and I like make myself feel good. And then I feel happy about being with spiders. No, it's actually that you go and feel, can I swear on this podcast? Sure. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. You feel shitty and you just sit with it. Like you literally sit with it. Like you sit and allow those feelings to come and just be mindful of them. Hmm. It's the weirdest thing. Cause I am a control freak. So I'm like, why would I do this? Like, why <laughs> wouldn't I just go like into a small space, like an elevator and like do some breathing exercises to make myself feel better. Or like, imagine I'm in a happy place. He's like, all those things are reinforcing the idea that you can't handle this, this stimulate stimulus, which is the elevator, but you can handle it. You have to train your brain. Not only can you handle the stimulus, that's the elevator. You can handle the discomfort that you feel. And I think that's, that it, that's what happened when you're in pain. It's obviously a sick, I shouldn't say obviously to many of us, it's perceived as like, in our brain is like alert, yes. you know, alert, yeah. alert, take some action. Right. Don't just sit there. Yeah, you know? exactly. But weirdly enough, like if your pain is chronic, it's like the analogy some use is again, this is it's pain is hard, right? If you have, if you have a organic or some sort of known cause that's solvable to your pain, of course you want to solve it. But let's say you have some sort of, you know, chronic pain. That's just it's potentially your brain kind of perceiving the threat is life-threatening when it actually is not, mm-hmm. then 
it's helpful to sit with that pain according to acceptance of commitment therapy and just be like, this is what is going on right now. Like right now, just you become like, there's the self that's you in that moment. And then you become, you practice becoming or paying attention to the observing self, which is like, I'm noticing this is what I'm feeling. I'm noticing that I have pain in my left hand. I'm noticing. And you don't say that's good or that's bad. You just are like, I'm noticing. And yeah. I don't, again, it's very weird how this all worked, but it's helped me both for pain and both for my phobia, but to tie up the loose end. Um, so acceptance is the first part of literally being able to, um, they say, it's not about, it's not about resignation. It's not about giving up hope for a better future. It's just saying, this is what's happening today, right now. And um, the way Russ Harris, Dr. Russ Harris talks about it is like another word for acceptance is just taking what is get being given to you. Like, this is what life is giving me right now, sitting with it, connecting to it. And then that's the A part of ACT. And then the C and the T is commitment therapy. You, you, you check in with your values, like you're talking about you know, joy and things that bring you happiness and things that you value is social connection or productivity, whatever it is. And then you the T part, I mean, it stands for therapy technically in ACT, but um, the way that Dr. Harris talks about it is also like take action. Like, so then that's the behavior part. So um, where you say, okay, what can I do now? You don't say, can I make the pain better? You say, what can I still do to have a rich and meaningful life mm-hmm. alongside this pain? Whether that's, you know, again, physical or psychological pain. I mean, like obviously like pain is processed in the brain, but um, you know, like whether you're having like, like for me, like, being in an elevator is not physically painful, but it's very psychologically painful because of my claustrophobia. Um, like if the elevator door is open, I don't mind being in it. Like or a closet, I can go in a very, very, that's why it's not claustrophobia. Like I can go in a very, 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 very small space as long as I know I have control over whether I can get out. Mm. So like an airplane with the door open is fine. An airplane with the door closed is just as bad for me, whether it's in the air or on the ground. It's actually mm. slightly worse when it's on the ground because for some reason I feel more trapped, kind of like a caged animal. Like, I like this is wrong. Like when we're flying, I'm like, this is right. Like we're supposed to be flying. It's very interesting. But yeah, so yeah. I've gotten a lot, I've been able to tolerate it, but I like, I haven't actually completely habituated to small spaces. Like I still feel uncomfortable, but I've learned that I can persevere through that discomfort. And yeah, totally. So yeah. This, this is all fascinating me. stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. let's go. I want to go back to okay. the beginning of your story. Like when, when did oh, this yeah. first start for you? Yeah. Okay. So my life until my diagnosis, and this was confirmed by both my, ther- my psychologist and th- psychiatrist was a bit of like a positive outlier. And I just make sure to say that because like, there are a lot of, this is unusual, but that a lot of people who develop autoimmune diseases or chronic pain have had like trauma, like a history of trauma or something. And so that's really important to acknowledge, but I also make sure to point this out that, you know, this also can happen to anyone An yeah. autoimmune disease can just happen to anyone. Uh, a lot of the, um, um, you know, current theories are that it's an, an genetic predisposition plus an environmental trigger. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, I grew up on Mercer Island, very privileged. Mercer Island is like a very rich suburb just for those listening. <laughs> um, very, but w- not just, not just socioeconomically like privileged, but my family was a very happy, very loving family. And I did well in school and I was good at sports. And like, again, I'm just, I'm not saying this, like I'm amazing. Just to be like, 
this came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I went to college in New York and I was playing soccer and over the, between my like sophomore and junior year, I just started feeling like something is weird. Like I actually, my first symptoms were my stomach. Um, so weirdly enough, the systemic symptoms, just for those listening of rheumatoid arthritis, systemic meaning outside of the joints, like the symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis for joints are like bilateral or symmetrical joint pain in the distal joints. So fingers and toes, wrists, not necessarily hips and shoulders or back, but it could be if it's really bad. Um, but typically like if you have just one joint that hurts, it's more likely to be like osteoarthritis or an injury. Whereas if you suddenly like two sides of the body hurting at the same time is a very big indicator that something systemic is going on. Right. Unless you injured both those sides. So anyway, I started having, I did not have joint pain initially. I just had appetite loss, unintended weight loss. I just started feeling, um, like I started losing weight and I just felt like every time I ate, it was like, there was a bowling ball on my stomach. And I was like, what is going on? Well, it turns out that, um, again, these are two symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, and then I sprained my finger. I thought that I sprained my finger because I did initially only have one joint that hurt. So I was going to a lot of doctors and trying to, but they were all like GI doctors. I also had very dry eyes. I was going to ophthalmology. Dry eyes can be a symptom of rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. Again, these systemic symptoms because it can, the same immune system, process can attack your lining of your joints and also your eyes. Um, so I started going to all these GI doctors and they say, Oh, you're not sick. Like I got very, I don't know if you've covered medical gaslighting already. I'm sorry. I should have listened to more episodes before. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It comes up quite a bit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I'd be surprised if it didn't. So, yeah. And it was, what was even like for me as like, again, somebody who my whole life, I just trusted adults, right? Like I, when your childhood is very like happy and harmonious and you have like everyone in your life is trustworthy, like there, it was such a rude awakening. And again, I say mm. I'm privileged and like, I'm still, I'm glad, or I'm not, glad, I'm lucky. Like I recognize that privilege, but like, I'm lucky that I didn't have to realize that like some people are not nice <laughs> or not good <laughs> at their job until I was 21, mm -hmm. but it was also like, it really shattered like my whole understanding of how the world works. Right. Cause I'm <laughs> like, well, it's like Mr. Rogers says, like, look for the helpers, you know, look for the helpers, <laughs> look for the helpers. Sorry, I used to work in pediatrics. So, um, so like, so I looked to the helpers, right. And the helpers were like, you're fine. Mm. Like this is, you're just stressed. That's why you lost your appetite. And I went from like 130 pounds, like really strong to like, and I have a small frame, but I went to like 105 pounds and wow. I was, this is not normal, you know, but I trusted them. You know what I mean? It was such a, yeah. it, I'm still not over it. Like I'm no, I never will be. <laughs> yeah. It was so that, that the, they, so, so the actual gaslighting. So them thinking, I don't think it's gaslighting. If a doctor just says my clinical opinion is that you don't have anything going on, that you're just anxious. Okay. To me, that's not necessarily gaslighting. What was gas, it was gaslighting adjacent to say, you're just anxious. But what was really gaslighting was they called my parents and said they thought I was faking and that I had an eating disorder. Wow. And I was just hiding an eating disorder. Oh my God. Yeah. And actually a little unluckily for me, there is a extended family history of eating disorders or some mm. of my um, extended family members have had them, not me ever. And I was like, you don't understand. Like again, eating disorders are horrible, but I, I would look at somebody who was like 
obese and I would be so jealous that they could just eat. Like I wanted to eat. I wanted to feel robust. Like I didn't know what was going on. I had this sprained finger and then I was losing weight. Well, it turns out that another symptom of rheumatoid arthritis, the, the weight loss, um, is from something called rheumatoid cachexia, which no one knows why this happens, but it's severe muscle wasting. Hmm. So my muscles were just like literally wasting away. And then I'm going to these people that are supposed to help me. And they're just telling me to go away. Like They're like, yeah. like the analogy I always use is it's like, and again, I'm sure you've already talked about this in the podcast, but it's like, I felt like my house was on fire and I called the firemen and they're like, your house is not on fire. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so common. And- it's just heartbreakingly so- common. I mean, we've all been through it, I think. There's only like, yeah. I, I've only interviewed one or two people tops who did not experience that. Um, I think, yeah. and I think they all have since then, <laughs> unfortunately, oh, or it was like they didn't yes, experience it at first, um, but then they experienced it later. I mean, you know, you go to the doctor and you ask for help and they're just like, no, you're, this is your fault. There's nothing wrong here. This is something you've done to yourself. It's like, this is just anxiety or, you know, yeah. and, and even... Or, or just just an eating disorder. Anxiety and eating disorders are things that are, are very hard things. to deal with yeah. that people deserve care for also. So the whole system of that is just yeah. so messed up. And yeah, the that's like one of the main messages that I feel it's really important to share is like, you will experience that. You will have to yeah. um, advocate for yourself. Doctors are looking for any reason to just not help you and just get you out the door. If there's right. anything that will even remotely make them suspect that this is not their area of expertise, then, yeah. you know, then they're just trying to get you out the door. And it's, it's, it's awful. There are great doctors who will help you out there. Yeah. So just keep cycling through until you find the right people. It's just, that's the way it is. Well, I think like absence of proof is not proof of an absence, right? Exactly. And that's exactly. Really- that's so funny because like in our legal system, it's like innocent until proven guilty. But yeah. in terms of being perceived as a hypochondriac, it's like guilty until proven innocent. Exactly. Like, so when I actually got my, my, and okay, so here's even more privilege. And I just mentioned this because yeah, to underscore how difficult it is for young women in particular, there's yeah. tons of research, like yeah. young women who present with pain and, and um, autoimmune symptoms are s- taken ser- much less seriously, especially women of color. Like I'm white, for those of us listening. So say, I have some white privilege, obviously, but um, my parents hired a concierge doctor. I don't know if you mm-hmm. know what that is, but that's like a, yeah. it's a private doctor. Like not literally, like we weren't like their only patient. It was like, right. more like a celebrity level, like, but like, but they, but they are available to you 24 seven because they believed me. Like they yeah. knew something, they knew wow. that like, Again, and in this, the reason I mentioned the happy childhood too is if you have other things going on in your life that are difficult, then a lot of providers will explain it as that, like, oh, you must be stressed about school. No, I'm not. Oh, you must be stressed about this trauma that happened to you earlier. No, I didn't have any trauma. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm literally nothing. Um, and so this is so I finally, and then she, even that doctor, the concierge doctor, when I first presented her, like I had organized, like, these are my symptoms. This is what happened. This is what I've been eating. Like maybe, cause again, we're thinking it's a GI thing. And like, who cares about the sprained finger? And she even said, I think you're hypervigilant. Like you're too worried about your health. I'm like, mm. what is the normal amount of worry I'm supposed to have? <laughs> like, and I've had this conversation with both my psychologist and psychiatrist. I'm like, okay, if the definition of anxiety is excessive worry, who gets to decide what's excessive? Like if your immune system, it turns out in my case was attacking all my body. And the only way for me to get relief from that was for a, for a doctor to find the diagnosis. It's completely reasonable for me to be worried about that. Right. <laughs> like it was such, it was terrible. So finally, and then I was 
fortunate enough that then I got food poisoning in the summer of 2003. And then sometimes a virus can, or a virus or like a food poisoning or something like that can like really kick your autoimmune disease into full swing. Mm. So then every single, I woke up after like throwing up all night and every single joint, I couldn't, I couldn't unclench my fists. Like my knees were locked up. Um, and I was like, this is new. (laughs) And then I go in and they're like, they did the blood work. And, uh, and then my, this concierge doctor was like, yeah, you have rheumatoid arthritis. And they, she was like, I I don't remember the conversation extremely clearly. I, cause I was so relieved. Mm -hmm. I was like my, and I used to be proud of that. Like people like, were you so sad when you got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis? I'd be like, no, I'm really amazing. Like I was relieved. (laughs) But now that I've thought more about my, my journey and like, sorry, it was like talked a lot about it, obviously like talking about myself, but it was like, I'm mad that I was so yeah. relieved because yeah. I shouldn't have been relieved. The reason I was relieved is because I was so fucking medically gaslit. Like, yeah. so I shouldn't have been relieved. I should have actually realized how serious it was. But the only thing I could think of was they're actually listening to me now. Like I could tell immediately, like I was mm. seen as way more valid. She took me way more seriously and was like, we need, like, she tried to communicate how serious the disease was. But again, I was like, I don't care. You're saying there's medications, like just give them to me. Like I had no hesitation to take medicine, which I know now is very rare because every single day on social media, I see people who are really scared to take the meds. Mm -hmm. I totally get it because they are immunosuppressant, but your immune system's already messed up. Like I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but like you're going to have to fight fire with fire. So the, the good news is the medications for rheumatoid arthritis are have come a long way. And like people diagnosed now with the modern medications are expected to have a much better prognosis. Like the defor- amount of deformities, I do have mild joint deformities. You can't only like the trained eye could see them. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like really bad at showing on the screen. Um, but <laughs> um, after 19 years of having this, what they would have, ex- if I was diagnosed in the eighties, like the amount of progression of the disease with the blood markers and inflammation I had would have been expected to be way worse. So, so what I'm saying is it's like a, right now it's an interesting time in history to have this disease because you actually do have the best prognosis, but just to underscore how serious it is, the reason my doctor was trying to explain it to me, which I wasn't listening about is that, um, the inflammation from rheumatoid arthritis is associated with a much, if you don't control the disease, you're at much, much higher risk of cardiovascular events than average. And people with rheumatoid arthritis historically have had a seven years less reduced life expectancy as compared to the general population. Mm. That's a due to the inflammation and, and, and how it doesn't, inflammation doesn't like to stay in one place. So it might originate in your joints and then it travels to your lungs and your heart. So lung and heart issues are really common. And again, that's why a lot of us with, we also kind of get gaslight, some gaslit people with inflammatory arthritis, because we're told it's just arthritis, like friends and family might be like, what's the big deal? Like it's arthritis, your foot hurts, whatever, like just push through the pain. And you're like, that's why I say like, it's a full body. It's like lupus. It's a lot more similar to lupus than it is to osteoarthritis. Mm. Um, wow. And the hardest part for me is by far is not the joint pain. Um, it's, it's the uncertainties, it's the managing the unknowns and it's the fatigue and the other, I can't mention, believe I didn't mention fatigue yet, but fatigue is the biggest, like I was fatigued too before. Um, but it's hard to tell how much of that fatigue before my diagnosis was like malnourishment. Cause I wasn't hmm. able to digest and no one really understands exactly perfectly the relationship between like gastrointestinal issues and rheumatoid arthritis, um, and autoimmune diseases. But because a lot of your immune system is in your gut, there is like a interaction or there is um, a relationship between gut 
health and autoimmune disease stuff. But yeah. anyway, sorry. That's, so that's, <laughs> that was my, that's kind of how it happened. And I went into med, the part that I just want to make sure to mention is I've been on four different, those listening who have rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory arthritis, I've been on, I'm on my fourth biologic, which is a, it's a certain class of medications that is works really well for many people. The problem is, so why would I have to be on four different ones? Because your immune system is stupid enough to attack your joints, but it's smart enough to outsmart the medicines. Mm. So what happens is that over time for many people, for me, it's usually after five to seven years on each medicine, my body has created antibodies to the medicine. So then I have to switch. So I've been on methotrexate for 19 years. And then I've also been on these different biologic, um, biologics are just called biologics. There's just a kind of medicine. So I forget what the point of that is. Oh, but though, so when I went on my first biologic, I went into medicated remission for seven years, oh, wow. which means my disease totally stopped. Like, and I still had to take the medication, but, um, so I didn't have any pain, um, or, or fatigue. And I thought that was going to wow. be what I did the rest of my life. I'm yeah. like, this is great. I figured it out and I felt better. <laughs> I gained all the weight back. Like it was, I took the pictures of myself and I'm like, oh my God, I look from, I went from looking like I, I thought I had cancer. Like again, but then it's like this, this, you can't say that, right? Once you've been labeled hypochondriac, once you, you can't say how worried you are about your health because then right. you're just com- continue to be labeled as like a, a quote unquote, like a head case or like, you're just worried about it. But, um, but then I, you know, I gained the weight back and I was like, see, this is not about eating disorders. It's not about, you know, again, not that eating disorder. It's it's horrible to have an eating disorder, but that just wasn't what my problem was, you know, but yeah. so then I went, but then I got into remission and then I haven't actually been in complete remission since. So then after my first remission, I went on another medication, which has worked better, but then my disease flared up really badly when I had my son after I had my son. Hmm. So I went into remission during pregnancy and then it got really, really bad postpartum. And so I've been kind of like chasing chasing remission again ever ever since as remission is is good because again it means that you're not having a lot of inflammation in your body and it's slowing down the disease but um but so it's the what underneath all of what i'm saying is it's a very difficult disease to manage because there can be so many ups and downs right like i've had periods in the last 19 years of like I'm in remission, la la la, like I'm swing dancing and I'm doing my (laughs) life. And, you know, and then these horrible periods where like, I can't, I'm like, I'm having these psychological issues of like, you know, these phobias and like, I feel trapped in my body, like with the pain and fatigue and I like can't get out of my body. And so I'm like kind of having panic attacks. And so, um, and then I'm, yeah, having to deal with the symptoms too. So I think what I tell a lot of like newly diagnosed people is like, you ha- like the sooner you kind of come to terms with uncertainties, the better, because they like, we all want certainty, right? When you're anxious, you want the black and whites, but there isn't a black and white answer to how to manage this. It's going to be like a roller coaster up and down over time. And as depressing as that might sound, it's better to know it earlier. Otherwise you get kind of a rude awakening when it becomes clear to you, <laughs> you yeah, know? Absolutely. So yeah. you mentioned being married and having a kid. So oh, yes. <laughs> how do you how do you fit all of this together? You know, like having a chronic illness, having chronic pain, um, never knowing how you're going to be on any given day, I'm assuming. Um, it sounds like yeah. things go up and down quite a bit. So how do you yeah. balance life and relationships and family with this thing that doesn't go away? I, be- I manage it very therapy fully. No, (laughs) Um, no, I, yeah, that's, that's such a good question. I think um, for first is um, I, 
have learned I have to plan for like less ambitiously than I want to, which is sad, right? Because I want to just be like, I want to live life to the fullest every day and like do everything I want. And I used to be able to be that way with my condition. I just kind of like, oh, I would stay up late swing dancing and then just like take an extra nap the next day. But now that my condition is a little more, you know, progressed, um, like with managing, you know, relationships with my, my son and my husband, I have to like say, okay, on a given, you know, weekend or with my work, say like, I have to plan for less than I think I can do or less than I want to do. And that way I'm able to have some wiggle room if things get, you know, get bad. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think from a very young age, I've trained my son to, it's trained, it's like a bad word to say. (laughs) I'm like, I've, I've taught my son that like mommy needs rest. And like, I don't feel guilty about that. I know that's unusual. A lot of parents feel like mom guilt. I have felt guilt about other things, but about my condition. I don't, I think it's actually, maybe again, I'm delusional, but I think it's good for him to learn that like some, I'll say like some people's bodies need more rest. He knows that like, I take a rest, like, um, and I'm able to very lucky to have a, a flexible like work schedule right now. So I like take a rest every day. Usually if I don't have like an appointment between like two and 3 PM. And like, now that he's back in school, that's like when he's in school, but sometimes I'll do it at like four to 5 PM. If I had something earlier in the day and he just knows like he, and it's funny. Cause you would think, Oh, I feel guilty. Like I'm not with my child, but like, it's so funny. Cause one time I, uh, one time during the pandemic, um, I was, I was having to, I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I have to do a meeting. I had gotten in the habit of giving him the iPad whenever I did a meeting or whenever I did a nap. And then he was like, I was like, Oh, my meeting got canceled. I was like, Oh no, I wanted to do the iPad. So it's kind of like the things that we think are going to be sad for them. Like he didn't actually care about me not being there because he just wanted the iPad. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's just a little example, but I have to come. I'm trying to think of how to say this about my my husband because, you know, he is a lot more private than I am. So I try to be like careful about what I say, Mm -hmm. but I will say like a common thing that's happened with us and with a lot of other couples is that like he's an engineer and he's really, really good at like problem solving. And I love that Mm. about him. But what (laughs) we have with chronic pain and chronic illness is like, um, unsolvable unsolvable problems. Yeah. (laughs) And so this comes up a lot in my life. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So yeah. And it was, that's actually another thing from, um, from, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's like this, again, it's, I think it's like a very unusual thing to, like admit in American culture, right? Cause we're very optimistic and we're like, Oh no, there's a, there's an app for that. There's a solution for all that. And so at some point I did have to tell my husband, like, I re I, I realized that this is really uncomfortable for you. If there's like parts of my health that are just unsolved, like we're just, they're just unsolvable right now. Like we're doing everything we can. And we just don't, I just, I don't know when this medicine is going to kick in. I don't know if this medicine is going to kick in. I don't know. I just don't know. And I kind of need you to be able to sit with me in the unknown rather than like unengaging and being like, um, kind of like, I don't know how to like, you know, just saying like, again, like it's like, cannot compute. He's like, well, why don't we just talk to another doctor? Yeah. You know, like in his mind, it's like, and that's how we all think before we experience this. Right. right. And like, Oh, you just, but like people, like we're all, um, you know, fallible. Right. And like, yes, I would, on the one hand, yeah, maybe if I talked to a different doctor, they would know something different, but it also, it's kind of like you talked about earlier. We have to get to the point where like, my, at some point it's kind of like, has to be just like good enough, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, but I do, I think I, sometimes the thing I feel sometimes guilt about is that like, you know, when you get married, obviously you make, or not obviously when you get married, you, you know, if you do the traditional vows, which we didn't like, we didn't do like any traditional, like 
religious vows, but like, you know, like sickness and in health, like you do make that vow and, and whether or not you have a chronic condition, you're saying like in the future, like, you know, my husband could go from fully able-bodied to disabled tomorrow or today he can get in a car accident. We could all do that. But we thought like in 2012, when we got married, we thought since I had had this condition for nine years at that time, we thought we knew. Right. And cause I didn't understand, I didn't understand, even though I'd already lived with it for nine years, I was, I either didn't understand the ups and downs that could come, or I was just blindly optimistic. I was like, it's like, I have RA, it's a big deal to manage. There's ups and downs, but I'm lucky because my body responds really well to the meds and mm. like, it's going to be like that forever. Yeah. Like, that's kind of what I just thought. So sometimes I don't, I don't feel like guilty. Like I bait and switched him or something, but I feel like I don't, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's kind of like, absolutely. Oh, I mean, it would be natural to assume that in that position. It's like, wow, I feel so much better. I got a diagnosis. I'm on these meds. Life is great. It's just going to stay yes. great. Like, why would you think otherwise? But you know what you said about the, the yeah. biologics changing over time. Um, and developing antibodies for the actual medication that you're on. You don't know that, like, someone could tell you that, but you're not going to internalize that until it happens to yourself. And Exactly. Yeah, like, why would you think otherwise? You know, why would you be like, oh, I feel great now, but I'm going to be in a lot of pain in seven years. I just want to warn you that. Yeah, like, you, there's yeah. no way for you to know. I know. And I think, I, I think this has definitely taught me, like, it has taught me, though, to be more conservative, even more conservative with my predictions of the future. You know mm. what I mean? Cause I think, you know, like I, we, we always wanted to have two kids and there's plenty of people with rheumatoid arthritis who do for like, for those listening, you know, there's people who have three kids, four kids. I know I can name more than I can even name on my hand, just from people I've met on social media. But like one of the reasons we have an only child, I hate to say only, cause it's like one child is a lot and I'm very lucky to have one. Um, but is that it was really hard on my body. Like, yeah. and I, I went into remission during pregnancy, but the postpartum was really, really hard. Like, and I think it's, it's psychologically hard and, and mentally, emotionally, cognitively hard, um, and physically hard too. But like, it'd be like, you know, I'd be looking at him. I mean, he's the most precious little baby, but looking at him in the crib and like, not wanting to pick him up because I knew my hands would hurt. Wow, and it's like, that's yeah. such a weird, it's such a complex feeling to be like, I want to hold you, but when I know when I hold you, I'm going to hurt. Like, it's like these two primal urges conflicting, right? The yeah, primal urge yeah. to like hold your baby and the wow. primal urge to not have pain, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it was hard. It was overwhelming. And so even like, you know, we thought, okay, well, what if we like, we, we tried to problem solve, like, okay, what if we do this? What if we do that? And then actually, if it was just the rheumatoid arthritis, we would have tried to have another baby. But, but, um, I also had like three acute health issues unrelated to RA happen between 2016 and 17. Mm. And then that was the nail in the coffin where I had from, for, that sounds terrible, but like for having another baby, it was a really hard decision. Cause again, it's, it's, everything's these gray areas, right? It's not like, oh, I'm infertile because of my condition. So I can't have another baby. It's like, maybe if I just tried really, really hard, we could. And it just, it got to the point where it was like, you mentioned about predicting the future because I had lived through such horrible, like I I was in a car accident and then it wasn't like, I wasn't hospitalized from the car accident, but I had a really bad concussion and whiplash on my neck. And Mm. then I had a, a cyst that grew on my tailbone where I had to get that surgically removed. And then I had delayed wound healing and a lot of pain from that. And then I had I got a stomach virus again, which oh, set geez. off my gastroparesis. Oh, back in 2003, I did eventually get diagnosed with gastroparesis, which mm. is delayed stomach emptying or paralysis of the GI tract. 
So I actually want to, I'm glad I have thought of that to say that because the amount of difficulty I had eating was more extreme than the typical person, like yeah. unintended weight loss and appetite loss are symptoms. Like if you look on my Mayo clinic, whatever for rheumatoid arthritis, you'll see those as symptoms. Um, but the amount of difficulty I had eating was beyond that. So it was, I did get a GI doctor diagnosis of, um, gastroparesis. So, but, but, you know, so I, my gastroparesis got really bad in 2017. I lost a lot of weight again. I was like back down to like 105, like now I'm like 120, but, um, and so it was like, and then I started getting really, and that's when my um, panic attacks were happening and I was getting that clytrophobia again. And I, I kind of deep down kind of realized that like, I was feeling almost a little trapped by this expectation that I needed to ha- like be able to get my health back to uh, good enough to have another baby. Mm. And I actually seen a naturopath in the Seattle area to help me with my stomach. I'm trying to like leave no stone unturned, you know, and she has ulcerative colitis and she was like, it's okay if you don't have another baby, like, you know, and it was like, the first time I really, you know, obviously to talk to my husband about it too, but he, um, you know, it, that, so that was really, really hard. And I still, I mean, now that my health has gotten better, better as a relative term, better than 2017, but I'm 40. So it's kind of like, you no, know, it's a ship for me personally, it's, it's sale. I don't want, I don't feel, even though my health has gotten better than 2017, yeah. I don't feel like it's the right thing. But it's also like I see little families of like four kids and I'm or you know, three two kids and two parents. And I'm like, oh, like I kind of have this like kind of little ghost child in my head that kind of follows us mm. around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's fascinating. All these conflicting, like you said, primal yeah. urges. But yeah, I mean, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with just having one kid, you know? No, Tons it's, of families. It's, there's so many benefits of it, yeah. actually. I've learned. Yeah. 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 And I mean, when we look at, you know, the future of the Earth. <laughs> um, I know. Sorry, I was like, I don't get, I don't care about climate change. I just want to have another baby. Yeah. No, that's another yeah. benefit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, yeah, I mean, that's something massive to consider when you have any sort of ongoing health problems. Um, you know, pregnancy can really it changes your body very significantly, and you go through some really intense hormone changes. And if your body is already out of balance, um you know, who knows what will happen. And that's something to consider, you know, and there's like, this is something that Andy and I have talked about is, you know, the, the possibility mm-hmm. of adoption over, you know, mm-hmm. natural childbirth, just to not take the risk of something like that happening. Yeah. That's a huge consideration. Yeah. that's something we, we considered too. It would, it would still be challenging, but, but yeah, I think all, all options, you know, people should consider and on all the positives and negatives of each, you know? Yeah. Um, but sorry, I feel like I had a thought, but then I put it away. <laughs> well, I had a question from a while back. This is oh, sort, yeah. sorry. Of, sorry. sort of off topic. Um, but yeah, yeah, of course. Some, something you said just like piqued my, my curiosity. You mentioned um, some of the things of, of cognitive behavioral therapy being yeah. Uh, harmful for you. So I never went through cognitive behavioral therapy, but that was a th- that was something that was like threat used as a threat against me. It's like we're gonna end, you know, like my neurologist is like, we're, we're if we can't find anything, we're just gonna send you to cognitive behavioral therapy. So um, mm. that was kind of like a, an example of a doctor saying like, I can't find the answer, so it must all be in your head. And you know, it's something that I worry about because I feel like I sort of got lucky in that the behavioral therapist was just like, you need to go back into diagnostics. So it didn't end up being, you know, years down a road where I 
probably would, I mean, I might have seen some benefit because therapy is great. Um, but it's also something that I worry about other people who are being told, you know, what you have is a, is something that can be treated, that can only be treated through cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. So I just wanted to get your uh, opinion on this. Okay. There's multiple things to unpack there, but yeah, first is it's all about the context and the delivery of when someone recommends cognitive behavior therapy. Like if in 2002 and three, when I was undiagnosed, if some, if the, the doctor had said, we know you're experiencing a lot of stress right now, like it doesn't feel good to feel like you can't eat anything and you're losing weight for in, we don't know why we don't, it could be that your anxiety, that you have anxiety and this is causing it, or it could be that there's something else going on. And we just don't, we don't know. First of all, medical providers hate saying that. They don't like to say, we don't know. But so if they had said, we don't, you're experiencing a lot of stress and that's completely valid. And we think that if you saw a psychologist or a counselor, that would help you cope with this difficult experience you're having. Like that would have been amazing. Right. I would have loved that. Like, and I, and the, what, what was instead, how it was communicated was you're not sick. You're just anxious go see a cognitive, you know, go see a therapist and figure out your anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that's the wrong approach. In my <laughs> yeah. opinion, right. So, so there, I should say there are some classic cognitive behavior exercises that historically have been used with chronic pain patients that I don't find helpful, but I would by no means want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like mm. there's a lot that's helpful about cognitive behavior therapy. There's a lot of individual differences depending on the therapist. Um, but but in your case, the second thing is conversion disorder. That is a very difficult diagnosis to get undone once done. Mm. And that's where they, they're like, it's, we really think your, your issues are all caused in, in your head. And that's, so that's a kind of a separate scenario. I kind of have, I am very skeptical about whether the incidence or prevalence of conversion disorder is anywhere near the amount that it actually. Yeah, that it's diagnosed. I would bet million dollars that it's not. Like, I think it's way overdiagnosed. And the same with the hypochondria or illness anxiety disorder. Yeah, everyone has illness anxiety disorder when they're undiagnosed. Right. And then, oh, so wait, so now that I got diagnosed, my anxiety was valid, so I don't have a disorder now. How does that work? It's a trap. Like, it's in the so in the bad. in the immortal words of Admiral Akbar from Return of the Jedi, it's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> No, it's yeah. you can't do you can't do anything right. But I will say, like for example, one of the uh, I, I don't know if this will be helpful for your audience, but something that I use. Um, so one of the one of the things from cognitive behavior therapy that I find helpful is um, identifying um, what they what this is again. This is from ch- being a child therapist. Like I used to do pediatric therapy, and it, it's called catching ants. And ants are automatic negative thoughts. So one of the things of cognitive behavior therapy that you do is you recognize that you're you have situations in your life and then you have thoughts about them and then you have feelings about them. And so we may have the same situation, like you and I may be in the same situation and have totally different thoughts, which lead to totally different feelings. And so it helps you to kind of break those down and think, is there a different thought I could have? Is there a different way to perceive that situation? Mm-hmm. So if I, let's say I got a, um, I'd started really, really hard for a test. I thought I was going to get an A and I get a C. Like I might have this automatic negative thought, like I suck. I failed. Like, you know, it's a C, but like, you know, I'm never, I'm not good enough. Like, 
I'm, I, things never go my way. I might as well not try. I'm stupid. Like that's kind of like your brain goes there sometimes. Right. And so in kind of behavior therapy, you would say, okay, let's examine those thoughts. What's a different way of looking at it? Like, like people with a depressive explanatory style tend to think of negative things as permanent, pervasive, and personal, and like good things as impermanent, not pervasive and not personal. Whereas <laughs> optimistic explanatory style, people are like, if I did really badly, oh, it was just one test. It was just today. I had a bad day. And it doesn't mean that what is the truth? The truth is probably somewhere in between those two. The truth isn't that like I'm an utter failure and I'm stupid if I got to see. And the truth isn't that maybe that I'm just, oh, it was just bad luck. Like maybe it's something in between, but it's, it's going to be helpful to realize, oh yeah, like my this is a distortion, like this thought that automatic negative thought that um, I'm a failure because I got to see on one test is a distortion that I can maybe reframe that thought. Does that make yeah, sense? Totally. That's a classic CBT exercise. So that's not, that's not bad. Okay. Let me tell you when I think it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad when you say you, I have a lot of pain. Okay. And now I'm worried about what that pain means for my life. Yeah. And I'm worried that I might lose my job. I'm worried I might lose my girlfriend. I'm worried I might never have children. And some therapist telling you that you need to just change those thoughts and like alter them because you're catastrophizing about your pain <laughs> to me is wrong, right? Yeah. Because those are they normal don't thoughts. Know. Yeah. They might be true. You might never, you might not have children and you might lose your job. Like, What's the point of altering those thoughts if they're true? You know, so that's where it gets. Yeah, it's it's very delegitimizing, and it can be a little gas. It's it'll, it's kind of gaslighty, right? Yeah, to be absolutely. Like, you you need to learn need to, to live with those thoughts. You know, you need to learn <laughs> yeah. to live in that situation. You don't need to deny the existence of that situation. That's yeah, very. Uh, that sounds very harmful. Yeah, that's exactly why acceptance and commitment therapy. It's it for those who are like really trained in this. You might be like, why is she saying that ACT is so different than CBT? It is technically there's a like the Venn diagram of CBT and ACT overlaps. Like, yeah, it's actually was born out of cognitive behavior therapy. It's like considered kind of like the third wave of psychotherapy or something like that. Anyway, I'm yeah. not a psychologist, but um, but it's saying what is going on right now. ACT, act and acceptance based therapy is like this is what's going on. And like, can I just change, can I change how I interact in the world? Can I say, okay, I'm not, I'm going to let these thoughts come. Like there's all these metaphors, which this is one of the I love about ACT. Um, there's these meta, there's these metaphors of like the passengers on the bus is one that I like where it's like, I'm driving the bus and the bus is like the metaphor of like, just where I'm going in my life. And like all these automatic negative thoughts like in these, maybe, you know, my pain means this, my pain means that, or like my anxiety, you know, my, my, my thoughts about being trapped, like I'm trapped. I'm going to, you know, I'm never, I can't get out or something like that. Can I proceed on the road with these thoughts with me? They're mm. on the bus yeah. instead of turning around, stopping, you know, the thoughts are telling you often like, stop, you know, like stop, get, you have to eradicate this passenger from your bus before you can move on. But actually, can you just live your life with these thoughts or with these and that's where it gets a little more complicated with this amount of pain. It sounds and I will so say much like more my, healthy, that mindset. It is. I think it's harder when you get to the severe pain. I mean, like my pain is mild to moderate, which I feel like I'm in a commercial. You're like, if you have mild to moderate, <laughs> rheumatoid, moderate to severe rheumatoid, right? Yeah. With, with medication, it's mild to moderate. So it is, I think, objectively easier to kind of r turn towards what's still possible in my life. I think if I had mm. 
severe, like eight or nine out of 10 pain all the time, that would be much, much harder. So I want to validate anyone who's like, oh, like that's, <laughs> I don't have the spoons to do that, you know, but, um, but there are people in like, you know, pain clinics, like I know um, occupational therapists and, and um, even some physical therapists and psychologists who work in pain management clinics where they, um, they take people with really, really persistent pain that nothing else has worked for them and the acceptance piece and then the re-engaging in their life with the possibilities that are still there has been like given people just a new lease yeah. on life, you know? That's so powerful. Yeah. I mean, this is great. Like acceptance yeah. Yeah. and commitment therapy, ACE mm -hmm. ACT therapy. Um, yeah. What you're saying about how that kind of grew out of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's like the next wave. It's very cool. I mean, it, it reminds me of how, you know, like conversion disorder has done a lot of harm to a lot of people. But there's this new diagnosis that's grown out of that functional neurological disorder that is much more focused on, you know, we, like, I want to validate the experience that you are having a neurological issue. We can't mm -hmm. find the cause. That doesn't mean that it is not real. And, like, let's look at what we can Very do sure. to try to improve your quality of life. Like, we spoke with someone uh, on the podcast with, with FND, functional neurological disorder, and it's, it's very interesting because that's... If, if a doctor tries to diagnose you now with conversion disorder, like you should see another doctor because yeah. Um, yeah. functional neurological disorder is sort of like, uh, it's in the same realm, but it's a newer understanding with more, more research-based, mm -hmm. more science-based, and more, more looking at the actual patient and trying to help the individual instead of just saying, we're done with you, you know? Uh, you know, you have conversion disorder, go, go see a, uh, you're going to go see someone else. Like we're done, you know, that, and yeah. that just feels so diminishing. And, and like you said, like this whole, this whole thing of like denying the existence, like learning to de deny the existence of these thoughts, like that is, that sounds completely unhealth unhealthy. Like, like you're just burying something that well, it's also can't impossible. be buried. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. yeah. You can't change what you're, and this is, this is what freed me. Like it, it's like, it, it I, I have this little post on my Instagram. It's like, um, it's quoting Gloria Stein. I'm like, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> like when that, and that was with respect to like some problems are perpetual and they're not solvable, but also like the thought that like, you can't control your thoughts. Thoughts are just internal phenomenon. Like they're like a linguistic phenomenon in your brain. And so, um, what you can, what you can control is your thoughts about your thoughts to a certain degree. So it's like a metacognition, you know, you can say, yeah. if I have a thought that I'm trapped, I'm not going to get rid of that thought. When I get on an airplane, I'm going to be thinking that I'm trapped. Like, let me just go into that situation with the acceptance and the understanding that like my goal cannot be to eliminate that thought, but my goal can be to have a different relationship to that thought. But relationship before therapy meant like I'm trapped and like, I'm actually trapped. <laughs> like, and I mean, it's not to say like, oh, let's think about all the ways again, the CBT would be like, think about all the ways you're not actually trapped. I'm not going to convince my brain not to have that thought. It's having that thought. It's very yeah. primal. Yeah. And so I say, I'm still going to get on this plane, you know, and I'm still going to, I'm going to live with these thoughts. And it's like, it frees you, that sets you free because it makes you realize that you're not down this fruitless road of trying to control your thoughts, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, and anyway. it sounds it, it, learning to sit with discomfort is so important with chronic illness. And I hate it. It's so tr it is yeah. important. And the like you said, like you go sit in the <laughs> elevator, you experience those thoughts, you learn that you can survive it, you practice it. Yes. You know, like yes. like a health practice, like yoga practice. You know, yes. all these things are 
are things that you can get better at by practicing. You know, like when you talk about practicing a musical instrument versus practicing yoga, um, yeah. it feels like it has a different meaning, but it really doesn't. Like you're doing something over and over in the hopes of getting better and better and yielding more and more reward from it. And the same is true of like a mental practice, a mental health practice. Yeah. And, you know, in a situation where you're constantly uncomfortable, constantly in pain and worried about it, you know, you can get better at that. <laughs> you can get yeah, better at being worried about it. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, I still don't completely understand it, to be honest. Like, you know, when I first started exposure therapy, my ther my psych psychiatrist, who he, he did the hardcore exposure therapy with me. Um, and he was like, I want you to go in the elevator and feel uncomfortable. And then he, I'd come back and like report to him. I'd be like, it wasn't that bad. Like, mm. yeah, he did a good job. He's like, no. If it wasn't that bad, then you were actually trying to de-escalate. It's like you need in order for this to work, and this is what works for OCD too. It's like you think, oh, for OCD, if I have a compulsion about like washing my hands, which OCD is a lot more than that. But let's just use that because that's like the classic example. It's like you need to learn how to just like feel awesome about only washing your hands once. But actually, no, you need to learn to have that discomfort during the compulsion to wash your hands again. You need to sit with that discomfort and just not do the compulsion mm. behavior. And train your brain that to learn that like that discomfort is tolerable. Yeah. So it's called distress tolerance. And so, mm. and a lot of people with pain don't don't like the idea of focusing on distress tolerance because it feels like you're telling someone to, I'm not, I don't care about finding the root cause of your pain. You just need to learn how to like deal with it. But the way I try to think about it is like you can still continue to pursue, like in your case, just you know, like pursuing a diagnosis, like makes total sense for you. Right. But yeah. given that you don't have one today, today, you don't have one. So what can you do today? I'm not, I'm not lecturing you, but I'm saying like, no, I so that's why the yeah. distress tolerance, yeah. it's a helpful tool. Like, even if you my goal is to, to like, you know, get into remission again. So I don't have rheumatoid arthritis pain. It's still beneficial for me to learn to, imp to improve my distress tolerance just because pain is inevitable. That's another big point in the book, the happiness trap pain mm. is inevitable. We just, and suffering is inevitable. And a lot of the happiness trap is thinking that in avoiding suffering, we're going to be happier, but it actually doesn't work like that. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. Bill, we've, we've like gone on Man, No, longer, this is great. Cheryl, this you've been amazing good. today. Okay. I mean, so, oh, <laughs> so many amazing things to, to pick through in that conversation. I feel like this is one that, um, that could be listened to multiple times and get different things out of every time. And it makes me very excited that you have a podcast yourself because I know that we've only scratched what? the surface today and there's so much more we yeah. can talk about. Uh, but I have one last question for you. So if you could, and then I, I want to hear about your podcast and I want you to plug oh, yeah, everything. Yeah. But my last question for you is if you could send a message back in time to yourself um, when you were a child, before you were diagnosed, um, just thinking about people who are in that situation now with whatever health situation they have going on. Um, let's say that, you know, you're young and you're not being believed by doctors and it's shattering your mm -hmm. perception of what the world is. What message would you send to yourself to, to help get through that? Oh my gosh. I honestly would say like, it's okay to go to therapy. Like therapy doesn't mean mm -hmm. like therapy from a counselor or a psychologist doesn't mean that it's all in your head therapy is like a form of self-care. You know, it's yes. a way to say you're going through something really, really hard. And the fact that you might see a counselor or psychologist doesn't mean that you're saying that your pain was all in your head or that there's nothing wrong with you. It's a way to just be able to help cope with this. And I was so 
stubborn. Like I didn't go to therapy until my son was one years old mm. and I had suffered a lot in that one year since his birth. And, but I kept thinking it was a little combination of stubbornness and optimism. Cause I was like, Oh, it's about to get better. And my therapist actually said, there are so many people with like postpartum mood disorders who say they come. I said, is it, is it weird that I'm coming to you? Like after my son's a year old for postpartum, you know, depression or postpartum issues. And she's like, I can't tell you how many people come when their child turns a year old. Cause they're like, <laughs> because they tell themselves for that whole year, just make it to a year and it'll get better. And then it doesn't get better. And so anyway, point being, there's so much a better awareness about like postpartum issues and the importance of therapy for like postpartum women that I feel like I had, I had permission societally, like to go to therapy for that, mm. but I had never given myself permission before to go right, to therapy for right, right. the pain or anything. Do you know what I'm saying? So Absolutely. it's like, I wish my earlier self would just know that it's okay to, to get support. Like it was so, so helpful. And I actually yeah. also thought, well, I don't, I shouldn't, I don't deserve therapy because my life was so good except for my rheumatoid arthritis. You know what I mean? And I know that's yeah. not a common thing, but it's like, oh, well, I didn't have any like difficulties in my life that were really big, you know? So that's anyway. huge. I but, mean, I didn't go to therapy until I was basically forced to because of that <laughs> conversion disorder diagnosis. Oh, um, okay. And I mean, I, I had seen a therapist before then because I had, uh, I'd gone through the process at least twice at that point of doctors saying, we can't find anything wrong, so we're going to send you to a therapist. Um, mm. the, the first time was I just had an evaluation by someone who's like, no, no, you're, you should stay on the diagnostic track. But then I ended up yeah. seeing a therapist briefly who did not really help me at all. And then I went back for the conversion disorder diagnosis to a cognitive behavioral therapist. And with her, it was like, wow. You know, I need to talk to someone about this because, um, like, this this is a very human thing that when something is difficult, yes. speaking it aloud makes you feel better, you know? And having a professional to guide you through that and having a safe environment to do that is so important. And I always feel yes. like podcasting is like a form of therapy for me. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And, you know, but I sense starting with, a, I, I finally have a therapist now that I really like, and I actually... I see my therapist with Andy, which is really nice. Like it kind of became oh, couples therapy. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, we talk a lot about like my pain situation and our relationship around it and navigating that and like navigating my situation with my doctors. And it's just so helpful to have a professional who, you know, hears me and takes me seriously and um, validates things. And it, it, it is yeah. self-care. It's like a bubble bath for for your thoughts. Yes. You know, it's, it's very, very important. It really, it really is. No, I really wish I had done it earlier. And I'm glad you have a good one now. It can't, yeah, another thing to, to remember is it can take a couple to find a good fit, you it know, probably will. but it's worth it. Yeah, yeah probably will. Sure. Yeah. And you won't know yeah. until you've seen them for at least a month or two, which is frustrating. You know, you kind of have to I know. give it a little bit of time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about, I just remembered something I wanted to say, you were talking about reframing and catastrophizing. Oh yeah. I've been applying this to my doctors recently when my doctors tell me something where I feel like the doctor's not taking me seriously or that like they're missing something or they're not responding fast enough or, you mm -hmm. know, like I still have, I'm really struggling with one of my doctors right now. Um, like I really thought I was close to a diagnosis and then we got much further away all of a sudden and I still don't know mm -hmm. why. And like my doctor's not responding to my questions and oh, no. it's just driving me absolutely insane. And I'm, I'm just like jumping to like, this doctor doesn't take me seriously. Like we're not going to get anywhere. And I'm trying to back myself up and say, well, this doctor is busy and 
You, it's yes. hard to read tone of voice in an email. And when I talk to her in person, maybe things will be different. And I'm just like using that approach for how I relate to my doctors. Because when your relationship with your doctor falls apart, it, it really needs to be on like logical um, scientific terms. Otherwise, your next doctor is not going to, you're going to have a harder time finding your next doctor or getting the next doctor to yeah. listen to you. Because this whole thing is a trap where if you are like an- anxious enough about your own health, they will stop listening to you. It's it's a horrible fact, but it's it so it's true. Weird. It's so weird. Wh- yeah. Why wouldn't you be anxious if yeah. you were experiencing a lot of health issues? Like that's what. Yeah. It's like, do we not understand that things aren't mutually exclusive? Right. Like, like she's evaluating. You, I can have rheumatoid arthritis and anxiety. Like yeah, you can have both. Totally. Like this doctor's <laughs> been evaluating me for copper overload for potential Wilson's disease diagnosis, oh, okay. and she told me in the first appointment that if it goes untreated, it can cause permanent lifelong damage, you know? And I'm untreated because we don't have a diagnosis. And we don't know if that's the, it's looking less and less like that is the diagnosis. But Mm -hmm. for me to be like, can we please do something? Like, can we please do the next test? Do I have to wait for months in between every test? Do I have to wait for months every time I hear back from you? That causes me so much anxiety, you know? And that's like 100% reasonable. But if I show that Mm -hmm. to her, then she like stops hearing me, you know, because mm-hmm. it's a trap. It, the whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. So yeah. it's so important and then they, and to, then, yeah, to just like oh, contain yourself, like contain yeah. this like incredible anxiety that is reasonable because the system will ignore you if you don't. It's awful. <laughs> it's so it's, awful. <laughs> no, it's been so important for me to, yeah, to realize that, 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 that you have to be so careful about everything you say, you know, about how yeah. you say it. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's not fun. It would be better if we could just be totally honest all the time, but yeah, that's what therapy's for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, full circle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cheryl, you did an absolutely fantastic job today. Please tell okay. us where we can find what you're doing, your podcast and anything yes. else you'd like to share. Yeah. So thank you so much for offering this opportunity. Um, So yeah, I love doing life hack videos. As you mentioned earlier, we didn't even talk about life hacks, which is totally fine because they're very visual. They're very visual (laughs) medium. Um, But like therapy is like the life hack of, you know, mental health, but, um, but I'm arthritis life on TikTok, but you can find all my social media and videos on my website, myarthritislife.net. And I do. So arthritis life is actually a small business. It's like an educational bit focused business. And I do most of my education is free, like free webinars and free educational videos on, on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and everything. But I also do, I have two programs that are, that are paid programs that I'll just mention because that's how I'm able to like fund everything I'm doing. Um, one is an online course called the rheumatoid arthritis roadmap, where I basically just walk you through, like it's a, it's a self-paced course. It's all these recordings I've already done and a workbook where I just explain more about what is rheumatoid arthritis, how tips for managing the physical symptoms like pain and fatigue, and just making sense of all the different lifestyle things you can do like diet, exercise, um, and sleep. Sleep is really important. Mm. Actually, most people think of when they think of lifestyle, they just think diet and exercise, but sleep is super important too. And then also talk about like social tips for social and emotional life. So how to explain what the disease is because it can be complicated. And then um, 
executive functioning tips and mental health tips. So it's a lot, it's a lot. Um, so that's the rheumatoid arthritis roadmap. And then I have a six month support group that I do called room to thrive. So I do that <laughs> twice a year, like in the spring and in the fall, I start that. Yeah. And that's just weekly meetings that we just had one this morning. It's really great. It's always, I haven't had to like cap the numbers yet, but it's been like groups of like, you know, 15 to 25 and it's all people with rheumatic disease. It doesn't have to be rheumatoid arthritis, but most people have um, rheumatoid or ankylosing spondylitis. And um, wow. I do little mini lessons at the beginning of each meeting, like on a specific topic, like this morning was about romantic relationships and partnerships. So um, when you're asking about partnerships, you know, just like little tips for like dating versus like physical intimacy versus like long-term partnerships. And um, and then we open it up for like general support. So um, I'm kind of able to use my occupational therapy skills to facilitate these online groups. Um, they're technically, they're not, they're not occupational therapy. They're like general patient education and support. Um, that's just legal, legal. I want to explain that for legal purposes, but I do also potentially, I want to, um, start seeing clients one-on-one, um, as an occupational therapist in Washington state, but I've just tried to like, again, that my point earlier, not over, not overextending yourself, you know, that's something I want to do in the future, but right now those are my uh, main focuses. And so, but I do a lot, um, again, I do like free webinars. Like I do one every couple of months called welcome to rheumatoid arthritis, which is just kind of like a, if you've recently got diagnosed, cause this is what happens. People get diagnosed with these complex lifelong autoimmune conditions. They get a 20 minute appointment with a rheumatologist <laughs> and then they're like, okay, come back in three months. Yeah. Like our system is really not designed for chronic conditions. It's right. Our health system in the U.S. is really designed for, it's really good for acute illness. It's really not great for yeah. um, chronic. So, Absolutely. Um, so that I'm kind of trying to fill, I'm trying to fill some of those gaps with, with my programs, at That's least in awesome. the I love that. inflammatory arthritis. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Long-winded, but. <laughs> is room to thrive spelled R-H-E-U-M? Yes, it is. <laughs> and yes, I love acronyms too. So Thrive is also an acronym of like similar to the roadmap, but it's like, you know, tools for pain and fatigue is the T and then H is like habits and R is relationships and I is inner world and V is valued activities and then E is executive function. So <laughs> I have too much fun, but yeah. And what's the name of your yeah. podcast? Oh, it's just called Arthritis Life. Okay. So I didn't even realize that it's it's actually good because if people have their podcasts um, organized alphabetically, it shows up at the top. Mm. So, but I usually refer to it as the Arthritis Life podcast, but it's technically it's just Arthritis Life. And okay. yeah, we I mainly feature patient stories on there, but yeah. also with patients that have some sort of tips or like a specific thing like one of them was talking like aquatic, aquatic yoga or aqua yoga. I don't mm. know if you've heard of this. Or um, also like I have provider interviews sometimes where I have them share like a specific, specific tips or pointers from their awesome. um, expertise. So yeah, yeah, that's a great, I mean, it sounds awesome. And I, I feel like a lot of people that listen to this show, it sounds like something to be very similar and um, I'm going to check it out. I'm excited to check it out. That's very cool. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like awesome. I said, I didn't I know. know that that existed until today. I was just... Uh, oh, that's so funny. I was looking no, at your, your TikTok link tree. It's like a podcast. <laughs> what? I know. I have a lot. Yeah, I'm a little bit spread thin, but um, but I don't seem to be able to stop myself. So Yeah, totally. Well, I will tag you on TikTok. I always post a clip from my episodes and I'll tag yours if people want to find an easy way to find you. If you follow us on TikTok at Major Pain Podcast. 
Um, and yeah, Cheryl, you did an absolutely amazing job today. You, you're so intelligent. You have so much, uh, useful information in your brain. You're such a great resource. And I feel really, uh, lucky to be able to share that with our audience today. And like I said, we're just scratching the surface here, but it's, you're doing so much for the community. And if anyone needs anything, you know, if anyone has rheumatoid arthritis, like you're an amazing resource. And I'm so glad that people know that you exist now and they can check you out. Yay. Thank you. No, I love what you're doing too. It's so fun to see your TikToks. And I really hope that you do get some pain relief soon um, and some (laughs) diagnostic diagnostic clarity fingers crossed is, it is my oh. greatest wish <laughs> yes me too it will be a christmas miracle yeah, yeah no. <laughs> but later we can exchange information on like seattle area doctors because i have some good ones <laughs> oh sure yeah. i'd love that yeah. absolutely well awesome. awesome this has been great thank, Cheryl, you. thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for having me bye-bye thanks for listening to this episode of major pain I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, and Kelsey Matson, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, and Trish O'Brien. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.